Welcome to Healthcare Experience Matters. This podcast is brought to you by the Healthcare Experience Foundation and is dedicated to transforming the healthcare experience so that every person can receive and deliver the best care. We invite you to learn more by visiting healthcareexperience.org. Hello, everybody. We are back here. Healthcare Experience Matters. I am super excited to be joined by our guest today. He is Danny Woodburn. Uh, Danny, welcome to our show. I want you to tell us a little bit about your childhood growing up and, of course, as we're going to talk about, how you got into acting in the arts. I'm an East Coast guy. I grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia. Probably used my clowning ability, my comedy as a kid to prevent being bullied, essentially. Uh, I think it's a, it's a great outlet for a number of comedians that have come up in that way. And um, I think they just led me to the performance bug. I never really was in the plays in high school, but I, I took maybe one, you know, drama class as they called it. Uh, and then in, when I went to college, I pursued uh, film and television and theater. And I studied at Temple University in Philadelphia, got my degree. And then I taught um, at the Freedom Theater, uh, which is an inner city uh, performing arts school. Um, they had summer programs. I taught there for three months and then moved to Los Angeles. But I also did, uh, I did uh, some theater in New York prior to leaving, and I did some regional theater in Philadelphia after college. Uh, so I did, you know, I did some theater here in, this, in New York and, and at some shows in Philly, uh, aside from my college career. Um, I worked with an improv troupe for a few years, and uh, we did some colleges then, and then moved to Los Angeles. And, you know, back then it was all about pounding the pavement and walking into offices and seeing who who might be interested, you know, uh, thinking I I came as a, a big fish in a small pond, thinking I had a great resume. It all just basically came down to, you know, how I presented in the room until I could land the roles that that gave me attention. Yeah. I mean, I could sit here all day and rattle off the movies and television shows you've been in. Uh, I'm going to spare you that. I'm going to have people look it up on their own, but I'll just say I'm a major fan of a lot of your work, Danny. I I knew who you were before we were put in touch for this interview. And um, I really want to pivot from the, although it's always going to be, you know, a part of your story. I do want to pivot from uh, the arts entertainment kind of background that you have and talk about the advocacy work that you're doing on behalf of disability rights. Um, You know, what point of your life did that become important? And, um, you know, feel free to tell us the whole story on that. Yeah, I think I think for me, the advocacy, the advocacy sort of comes down from my mom, in a sense. So my mom was always a a staunch advocate for me and and getting getting the healthcare that I needed as a boy, because uh, I had certain needs, um, having a, a skeletal dysplasia syndrome um, and, you know, needing to have uh, a number of osteotomies and be in body casts and, and recover and learn to walk again. And, and that was a big part of my childhood and young adulthood. Um, and so I, I understood what it meant to be an advocate based on my mother, who was a nurse, who did what she could to make sure that I was treated normally, uh, quote unquote, normally by the world. And certainly that I got the care that I needed medically, that people didn't didn't 
sort of gloss over the fact that I'm different. You know, still today, even doctors don't all have a grasp of dwarfism. And so they will, you know, I've heard doctors say, oh, I think I could try that, you know, with regard to, say, a hip replacement on me or something like that. Um, <laughs> to hear to hear an orthopod say, I think I could try that is un- a little unnerving. But uh, I think I got it from there. And then, of course, from my own experience and understanding how people would see me, the prejudices they had around people with dwarfism, um, you know, the names I was called. So I advocated for myself. And then going into this industry, uh, not being seen as a legitimate actor with experience, but being seen as a sight gag or being seen as, a, you know, just a, an object in a sense on screen to be to be used, but not engaged with. Um, it led me to not just advocate for myself, but to think about others in the same category. And I became part of the Performance with Disabilities Committee at the SAG-AFTRA, uh, which was at the time, it was just the Screen Actors Guild. So I became part of that committee. And then um, over the years, I came to a better understanding of how people with disabilities uh, in this industry were often overlooked, not given opportunity. You know, literally laws were being broken with regard to not hiring people with disability. The way in which producers or directors had responded to, say, someone in a wheelchair, if it was any other industry, they they would have been sued. But in, in this industry, in the arts, it's it's such a fine line of determining what is prejudice and what is art, right? Um, but as the recipient of those prejudices, we knew... <laughs> It wasn't necessarily about art. It was about understanding the fact that uh, a location shoot wouldn't have uh, just access, physical access to a set, uh, physical access to a dressing room, um, that these things were overlooked where the law has been in place for 30 years that access needs to be created for places of employment. You know, somehow the industry has managed to completely disregard anything uh, in terms of that. And so I, I wanted to I wanted to acknowledge, you know, the people in my category, as it were, people with disabilities um, who weren't getting a, a fair shake at opportunities, who weren't who weren't being seen, who were being totally overlooked or who couldn't even get a job playing themselves. Right. So you see so many different actors always playing people with disabilities, but you never see the person with the disability except for, you know, going back to Marley Matlin. You don't see that. You didn't see it uh, on screen. You never saw like, you know, somebody who was a wheelchair user playing a person who's a wheelchair user. That just didn't happen. Uh, And so now we're in a place where we've shifted that paradigm a bit more. And there's an understanding of of not only the ability of these performers, but the fact that that their rights have been infringed on for so long that it's time to turn the table, reset the dial, as it were. When you were on Seinfeld, I want to know at the, you know, what you just mentioned that you wanted to always be considered a serious actor, um, you know, just a peer of someone on the cast, et cetera, right. and not be some sort of gag that you might see in decades of yesteryear. Right. When you were, if people who haven't seen the series, you know, when you were Kramer's friend, when you were a part of that cast, there was never any, no one ever mentioned any 
anything other than you were just buddies with Kramer. Was that right. novel? Was, very- at, was that novel at the time? Was that just a new kind of thing given the early nineties? I'm so curious about that. Yeah, that was definitely novel. It was, um, there was just one moment in the very first episode where George refers to Mickey uh, as a midget, which was, you know, has been for my entire life, a derogatory term for little people. Uh, it's born out of P.T. Barnum's desire to sell little people uh, for profit in sideshows. It's just a, it's a made up word. And so it, it always had derogatory connotations in the community. And so when they mention it, when George says a line, uh, can't you switch with another midget? I, originally in the script, I didn't have Mickey didn't have a reaction to that other than to explain why he could not do that. And I had talked to, uh, you know, Jerry and Larry, Larry David. And I said, look, this word is is a painful word. It's a hurtful word. And I can't just not acknowledge it. And um, so as far as acknowledging any aspect of it, that was the only beat in the whole series where it was acknowledged. And um, it was written in organically and innocently on the part of the writers. But my correction made it more um, noticeable that we've, we're addressing something here. And as they've always said, there's never been a very special episode of Seinfeld where, you know, lessons get learned. So we had to come up with a way that we teach this lesson without it being a lesson. You know what I mean? And that that yeah. response from Mickey became volatile yeah. where he walks up to him and he looks like he's about to rip his head off. And he yeah, says, yeah. it's little people. You got that? And then Michael Richards Kramer says, uh, easy, Mickey, easy. Yeah. So that that organic moment in the series then created the actual persona of Mickey in that moment, that he's this hothead ready to lose it at any, at any point. And then it just escalated from there. So the organic moment that came out of my advocacy created a character that got to come back, come back, come back because that, that became like a a feature of their relationship, Mickey's volatility, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, but that was the only time it was ever addressed. But to, to that point that you were making, it was very novel. I mean, I, I, I could go over a list of, of episodes. I, you know, small packages, you know, a, a little murder, you know, all these like sort of small and little terms that were the names of the episodes of so many of the things that I've done. It's it's almost it's almost humorous, you know, uh, to go back and read some of these things. So it was a novel thing at the time. And there, there's been a number of, of shows that I've had to address, you know, even further uh what's what's derogatory what what people should understand about dwarfism etc i've even rewritten entire episodes of, of programs to to take out so much of what i felt was was demeaning um and then created something that had absolutely no acknowledgement of my character's uh size difference and and you were on um the and you still might be in this role uh as part of the screen actors guild Performers with Disabilities Committee. You are. Yeah, are you yeah, currently still working with them? Tell us about. That's that. what I talked about uh, being part of before, where we, you know, we're trying to move the needle and change the landscape, and and so right now I'm the I'm the co-vice chair of that committee, um, and uh, you know we 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 meet with unions. We we set up um, in the 2010 uh, negotiations of our contract. We change the languages around disability. Uh, employment, and we created a task force with the uh, producers and and the union to look into 
where producers are missing the boat. And then since that time, I've I've worked in an advisory capacity to pretty much every every studio in town. And you know, we just mentioned that the Seinfeld story, and I want to know more about any of the other discrimination in your career you might have faced, and some of the changes you were able to implement. Um, I'm sure that the the Seinfeld story, there's more of those. Yeah, um, you know. <laughs> uh it, the, the list is is endless as far as you know having to make these changes i i was offered this role on um a kids show where the my character was was sort of he was it was a circus character right which i was like okay i understand that you know that that's something that does exist and uh uh but it was a kids show and the character was constantly coming on to the 14 year old daughter of the main characters. Right. And I, as a man in my probably thirties at that time, thought that was highly inappropriate. <laughs> you know, he's tried to kiss a child. Uh, and I brought that up to the producers before, uh, you know, even considering the role and they weren't interested in my opinions about it. So they moved on to somebody else who was willing to play that role. So I've, I've stood up in some of those moments and lost a job and stood up in some of those moments and changed the whole, whole perceptions. You know, I did a number of episodes of Bones and um, the very first episode had a lot of misinformation, uh, medical information around dwarfism that I helped correct with the producers. So, you know, there's, al there's almost never an episode of something that I've been in that I haven't talked to uh, <laughs> talk to writers and producers about where they might be missing the mark. Yeah. And uh, we have a lot of listeners who are interested in delivering excellent patient care, excellent patient experiences. And, you know, I want you to talk to our listeners now in our community. Um, you know, what, what else would you like them to know about, um, you know, your story or people that are like you? Um, what are some of the issues that are remaining out there that you would tell that audience? Uh, well, I think some of the issues are that there's still uh, there's still a lack of understanding regarding um, employment of people with disabilities in front of and behind the camera. Um, there's there's you know I had a I had a meeting. Um, uh, Brian Cranston did a role on uh, where he's a paraplegic wheelchair user or a quadriplegic person who uses a wheelchair, and um, there was a lot of sort of uproar from the community about it. And I approached him and he said, well, I think it's died down. And I said, no, it hasn't died down. Cause it's like a, it's like a thorn in the paw of this community that this sort of thing keeps happening with no acknowledgement or understanding of, of why it happens. And so, you know, he agreed to sit down and talk to me and, and uh, I explained to him, you know, this is about also access to education for people who want to be in the performing arts. You know, we talk about, going to the theater and, you know, the theater is ADA compliant for an audience member to go and enjoy a show, but it's not ADA compliant for a performer to come and learn on that stage. There's no, there's not necessarily access. And, and, uh, you know, Ali Stroker helped bring a lot of attention to that fact when she, uh, did Oklahoma won the Tony for that. She's a wheelchair user. And, uh, she brought a tremendous amount of attention because because of the value of her talent 
they made the theater, uh, the, the performance space accessible. And they, they shifted the whole paradigm of how it was structured. So she could have her own dressing room that she could get on, get on and off the stage appropriately in her wheelchair. And, uh, you know, it was one of the first things ever done like that. And we're talking about, you know, how many hundreds of years of theater has existed? How many, and then 30 years of 30 plus years of the ADA in existence. And yet that's only just happening, you know, in the last couple of years. Um, so, but in my discussion with Brian, I said, look, I understand, you know, you're a marquee, you know, meaning he's, he's going to head a film. He's going to bring the money in. He's the face on the screen that people know. But if, if, the, if we don't have equal access to opportunity, equal access to education, we're never going to get to that place. You know, a person, uh, with disability who, who an obvious disability, like a wheelchair user is not going to get to that place without the same kind of equal access. And so we're never going to be a marquee name. So I said, in order to shift the paradigm, for every role that a person takes who's in uh, a non-disabled person taking a disabled role, they have that power to give back three speaking roles on screen to a performer with disability. That's going to help shift the paradigm. So I call that the Woodburn Ratio. For every one that's taken away, three get given back. And I talked to Brian about this and he was like, he was all for it, you know, but I mean, I understood he, he had booked this job. He had agreed to this job, like something like 10 or 14 years prior to, to actually doing it, you know? So these are longstanding commitments that he's made and where the industry was 14 years ago versus six years ago versus now is very different. But I would say that only in the last six years, you know, has the paradigm changed. So when we had the Oscars in, in uh, 2016 and was the uh, Oscars So White uh, campaign was very prevalent. You know, we looked at marginalized groups not getting equal access to opportunity, but there was never any mention of the disabled community. And um, uh, as a result of that movement, the Motion Picture Academy in, indoctrinated 100 new members and they were they were all people of color and women, people that have been overlooked, but none um, in the disability community. And so at the time, that particular president, we approached her and she said, well, if they happen to be a wheelchair user who is a person of color, then then that would be OK. So they never looked at disability as a marginalized group unless it fit into one of the categories that was, I will say, popular at the time. Uh, because that was the truth of it. It was the it was it was the the popular the popular kids in the room getting the opportunity versus those who are also being marginalized. And you moved to the East Coast recently. We were talking about before um, uh, we jumped on the recording today, and I want to know a little bit about if you want to share kind of your brother's story and some of the stuff that, um, you know, you're learning about the patient experience and some of the things <clears throat> that are going on with your brother. Tell us about that. Uh, my brother has a Down syndrome. He's a, he is what's called mosaicism of Down syndrome. He is a, a fairly high IQ for what he has. In fact, if he'd been maybe two points higher, he wouldn't qualify for a lot of the disability benefits that he qualifies for now. Um, but the thing is, on his birthday uh, in December, 
uh, he collapsed from an aortic tear, from an aneurysm in his heart, and uh, he was given a very limited chance to live. And he survived a surgery, and within a week, he also had another, he had a heart attack, uh, and they had to put a stent in. Then he was in atrial fib, and they had to cardiovert, shock his heart back into rhythm. Um, then he got COVID. This is all in the span of being in the hospital for over five weeks. Um, but <laughs> the threat of discharge kept coming, kept coming, kept coming. And I didn't have a place for him to go. My mother's situation had deteriorated. My mother is dealing with her own things and uh, her her health was deteriorating. She could no longer care for him in the same way. Um, and so I didn't have a home for him to go to. And uh, he, he couldn't qualify for Medicaid in his current status because um, you have to have a certain financial status to qualify for Medicaid as well. And that was... I would say poor planning on uh, my family's part with regard to his future. And um, they kept basing his discharge on the fact that he could walk 150 feet. That was it. That was the criteria. There was no other element to his care that was important. Like he's on 11 or 12 different medications. He couldn't tell you when or if he's supposed to take what, when. He doesn't know what each of these pills are for. Half of them he can't pronounce. Um, and so, you know, it meant it meant I had to put him somewhere at our expense uh, for his care. Because now, now I couldn't find him unless I put him directly into a nursing home. Which, you know, my brother, to go from an independent life of somebody who can walk and take the bus and go into the city and go to the movies and go to the mall and do all of these things on his own, to now within the span of five weeks reach the point of, you're going to live in a nursing home because that's all we could do for you uh, is it was all based on him walking 150 feet. So he's, he's, his other existing disability is not taken into account. Um, and he could walk 150 feet, mind you on a walker. It wasn't that he could walk 150 feet free of a walker. It was just, it, it's just about being ambulatory to that point. And um, the disregard that insurance companies have uh, about a person's care level um, is <laughs> criminal, in my view. That that that's that is a blatant area, I think, of discrimination regarding people with disability. And people with disability, you know, he has to be essentially impoverished, have less than eight thousand dollars in the bank, not take more than twenty five hundred dollars in from all sources. Uh, so he's effectively, that's not anything anybody could live on effectively um, for the rest of their life without being impoverished. So he has to have that, have no other money in order to get help from the state. Um, and so these things aren't considered at all with regard to uh, healthcare and, and, and discharging a patient. Now, when I was in, when I was a kid, I had an arthrogram done. An arthrogram is a it was a, a spinal X-ray with dye. All right, I was about eight, and um, they did this under general anesthesia. So they put me out, uh, and then I woke up in 
you know, I wasn't in any particular pain, although when you have a spinal, you, you get an instant headache. So I had, you know, as a kid, I had a terrible headache kind of a thing. Um, but I was in the hospital probably for four days. So that was in the seventies, but now, uh, I could have a total hip replacement and they want me out in two days and they don't take into account, uh, that I might have had a different level of surgery than MIS hip surgery, MIS minimally invasive surgery. So that MIS is just, they cut a little hole, they go in, they can replace your whole hip through that little space. People usually, you, you have to get up the same night. You have to stay on the same night as the surgery. But, you know, people that have that particular surgery recover faster. As opposed, if you have a fully open hip replacement surgery, you're not going to be recovering faster. You, you're you're going to be recovering slower and it's going to take, you know, in my situation, I've had both my hips replaced now. So in my situation, uh, I was um, not able to, really be discharged and it became a, a a fight you know they have these administrators come in these these they like to call them uh, patient counselors but basically their job is to come in and try to get you home try to get you out of the hospital um and uh, you know i explained look i had not just this hip replacement but the doctor also did an, an osteotomy he he had to reshape my my whole hip area, the, the muscles around my hip, because um, I had had a number of osteotomies in my childhood. So I was different. But that's not that's not taken into account. None of that's taken into account. They want you out of the hospital. And that's that's the mindset now is get them in, get them out. You know, it doesn't matter you, if they're much more susceptible to infection, much more susceptible to a blood clot. I had a I had my knee I had a torn meniscus in my knee, had surgery, was home the same day as the torn meniscus surgery, but within a day and a half, I had a blood clot. And so that set me back six to eight weeks, 12 weeks. That set me back 12 weeks, that blood clot. So if I had stayed in the hospital a few more days, probably wouldn't have intervened with my life as much. So this is the situation that my brother's in. And, uh, You'll probably see an op-ed from me at some, at some point called 150 feet. You know, hospitals and the hospital my brother was in admittedly said, you know, we're not trained with regard to somebody with Down syndrome in the same way, you know, to have a full understanding of this. So I I, I had gratefully had the, the foresight to get a power of attorney prior to him going into the hospital. But if I hadn't gotten that, I, I would have been powerless, essentially, to do all the things I was able to do for him. And so that's that's another sort of scary aspect that if I didn't have that, uh, they could have done whatever they wanted with him. You know, I wouldn't have had that control. He would have been turned over to the state. You know, I would have had to fight to get that back somehow. Yeah. Uh, this general disregard around, especially people with cognitive disability, you know, we, we, we adore them. And this is what I believe to be truthful about people with Down syndrome. We adore them all the way through childhood into high school. And we love to see the story of the captain of the cheerleading squad, you know, asking the boy with Down syndrome to the prom. We love to see that story. Um, but is she going to, is she going to look in on him when he's 25, see how he's doing? You know, it, it, it's just about, you know, giving her a pat on the back. Isn't she magnanimous? And that's the way 
we look at disability, um, you know, we adore them when they're young and we do what we can to care for them. But when they're 35, 45, 55, 61, as my brother is, a lot less so. He's not as cute as he was when he was a kid. Danny Woodburn, I mean, this is what he's all about. This is opening up eyes to situations you just don't you don't think about. We've all read those stories and of course, you know, happily ever after, right? What happens after happily ever after? Uh, well, life goes on, right? And sometimes it's not so pretty. Um, but it's it's reality. And Danny, you know, you're you've always been about telling these stories and having your your voice heard because you do have a gift of being able to explain these type of things. And um, I think it's been an amazing experience having you on this this podcast today. I want to thank you for your time, and I'm excited to get this one out there. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Healthcare Experience Matters. Healthcare Experience Matters is brought to you by the Healthcare Experience Foundation. To learn more, please visit healthcareexperience.org. That's healthcareexperience.org.